Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. This morning, Romans chapter 7. Last Sunday, um, began a message uh, just simply entitled, Winning the Battle or the War Within. And uh, that is from Romans chapter 7, the last half of the book. And uh, I had wanted to preach the whole message, but uh, it was too much to cover. So we're going to, we broke it down into two halves today. Last Sunday, we talked about the two truths that we see. This morning, we're going to look at three perspectives that we always need to keep in mind uh, in this battle that we have that rages within us. So we're in the book of Romans chapter 7, and we'll get there and look at the text in just a moment. Uh, just by a quick way of, of review to kind of help set the, get the setting set for where we are, um, Paul has been talking to us now about practical application of the gospel. For chapters 1 through 5 gave us this theological explanation of the gospel, that all of us are sinners, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we need salvation, all right? And that we can't save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to bring ourselves out of this pit of sin. We are not just a bad version of ourselves, we are dead, And that the gospel doesn't just make us a better version of ourselves. Salvation will not just make us a better version of ourselves. Salvation makes us brand new, a new creation, a new creature in Jesus Christ. So we saw that theological understanding of the gospel. Now we have to apply that, right? Because what good is it to know the truth if I don't act on the truth that I'm given? So Paul says in chapter 6, which we saw, he uses some analogies and some illustrations of what it means now that we are saved and what has changed now that we have come to know Jesus Christ. And one of those things is we were slaves to sin. Now we have been bought with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are now made slaves to righteousness. And I know that we don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear or the thought that why would God make me a slave? Well, it's not a slavery like we understand. It is a servitude to God where we get so much more by serving him than we would ever get out of serving ourselves. He gives us so much more than we could ever give him. He has given us eternal life. He has given us a home in heaven. He has given us safety and security, and he has given us peace and victory. And then we saw the, we saw the illustration of marriage as well, that we can't get out of marriage until death do us part, right? And I know the divorce rate is what it is in, in the United States and around the world, but back then it was a, you can't get out of marriage until you die. And so we have now died to sin, this old suitor, this old marriage that we were in, and we have now fallen in love with Jesus Christ, and we are now married to him as the church, as the bride of Christ, and we have this new life. So what do we do with that? You know, it's almost like like a fairy tale, right? The gospel almost looks like a fairy tale. Here we were, dead in our trespasses and sins, with nothing to offer Jesus, and Jesus swoops in as the prince of peace. He dies a death that he did not deserve for us to pay a price that we could not pay, but we desperately needed paid so that we could have eternal life. It's almost like a fairy tale, isn't it? It's almost like a Cinderella story, a rags to riches. And we've been knee deep in Cinderella in our family because uh, that's the musical that our kids are in this, uh, over the past couple of weeks. But it is. It's almost like the gospel is almost like a spiritual Cinderella story. And what is the line that we always use with fairy tales at the very end of it? What is it that always pops up? And they lived 
happily ever after, right? When you got married, some of you who stood at a wedding altar one day, and maybe you, maybe you felt like Cinderella. Maybe you felt like you met your Prince Charming, or maybe as Prince Charming, you found your, you found your Cinderella. Can you honestly say that you've lived happily ever after every single moment? No, sometimes it doesn't seem like that, right? For us as Christians, it's tough sometimes. Yes, we've been brought from spiritual rags to spiritual riches, from spiritual death to spiritual life, but it takes some getting used to, doesn't it? Living by grace and understanding where we are in Christ sometimes is very tough to get. And one thing that shocks me and shocked me, and I've been, I've been a Christian since I was a kid. One thing that shocked me is I always heard stories about people who, when they trusted Christ and they became, they became a believer, like their lives were just radically changed overnight. Like addictions were broken and they stopped going to places that they knew they shouldn't have gone to. And they stopped saying the things that they knew that they shouldn't have said. And their whole life just changed in the blink of an eye in the moment they said, Lord, I give my life to you. But for most people, it's not always like that. Because the Bible says that we are being sanctified. We are being progressively moved toward holiness. Yes, we're saved and sealed for heaven the moment we say, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nothing we can do to lose our salvation, and there's nothing that we can do to be more saved than we are the moment we become saved. There's no, like, ranks of Christians in Jesus' army. But we are being sanctified progressively as we grow and as we mature in him. And sometimes we grow in that sanctification is not brought about by happily ever after moments. It's brought about by those horrific moments where our faith is tested or where we have seasons of doubt in ourselves or doubt in God or pain from the community of believers. Sometimes that sanctification is not brought about so freely as salvation was to us. So what do we do when we have those moments where we feel like, like the, old, the old classic, where we feel like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like there's two parts of us that are waging war with each other? What do we do? And that's what Paul said. So let's look back at our text again and see what he said just by way of review. We looked at this last Sunday, but I want to look at it again. Verse number 14 of Romans chapter 7. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible translation. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh. You can circle that I there. He's not just talking about Paul. He's talking about all of us. We are spiritual now. We have been raised to spiritual life, but we are still of the flesh. The flesh still lives inside of us too. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And he says, I am still of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. What he's saying is, I may no longer be a slave to sin, but I still remember my days of slavery. I still remember life of what it was like. And to be honest with you, that's the life I remember. And that's the life that I kind of default to all the time because I'm still being sanctified and learning the new way of grace. He says, for I do not understand what I'm doing. Anybody ever feel that way? Anybody ever feel that way? Look, guess you're in good company because the apostle Paul felt that way too. We look at the apostle Paul and it's like the first missionary and the guy who wrote 75% of the New Testament. We think super Christian, but here he says, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't understand He says, because I don't practice what I want to do, but I end up doing what I hate. Now, if I do what I want to do, or if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin that is living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is now with me, but there is no ability in me to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who, that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. If you mark, if you highlight, if you take notes, underline that passage. In my inner self, I delight to do God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body or in my flesh, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin, the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would be honored and glorified in this time that we have in your word. I pray that Holy Spirit, you would feed us and illuminate us to the truth of your word. Help us to understand you more. Help us to come to Uh, revere and respect and crave your grace more as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. One of the the great disciplines of of the Christian life is to uh, engage in scripture memory, to to memorize scripture. A lot of times we think about uh, kids doing that, you know, in Sunday school classes or or things like that. But as adults, we need to memorize scripture as well. If you're going to start memorizing scripture, I wouldn't start with this one. Uh, This one's a a tongue twister as it is, and it'll kind of get you all messed up as well. I do, I do not, I do not. You know, start with something a little easier, like John 11, 35. Uh, Jesus wept, all right? Just say, Jesus wept. You've already memorized a verse of the Bible. There you go. I wouldn't start with this passage, though, okay? I just wouldn't. I'd I'd, I'd build up to that one if I were you. But throughout this scripture... And throughout this passage and throughout, throughout all of the, what we've seen in the book of Romans so far, we've seen this overarching theme of redeeming love. That Jesus died so that we could have eternal life. That while we were not worthy of his love, he loved us anyway. John said, we love him because he first loved us. We don't fall in love with Jesus and then Jesus says, oh man, I'm so amazed at how you love me, therefore I'll love you too. No, God was the instigator of love. That's the gospel to us. And so Paul, the apostle Paul, who was once, you know, Saul of Tarsus, the bounty hunter that went out. Now, when I said bounty hunter, probably some of you were thinking of Boba Fett all of a sudden. But the bounty hunter that went out to find Christians to put them to death. He was serving God, he thought, by, by grabbing up all of these, these horrible Christians that were not following the law of God anymore in his eyes. And he thought he was serving God by doing that until he met Jesus. The redeeming love of Jesus Christ set Paul on a completely different path. Now here Paul is, writing this thesis of the gospel that would one day convert so many people to Christ, start spiritual awakenings in history. And he's saying, I'm struggling with it. He's saying, as good as everybody looks at me to be on the inside, I'm still, I still just feel like that old Saul, man. On the inside, I still feel like I'm battling this sin that's inside of me. And so to that, I look at that and I'm thinking, man, there's hope for me, right? There's hope for me that if Paul could struggle like this and still be used of God, there's hope for all of us, right? How many of you still struggle with, how many of you say, I'm saved, I'm saved by the grace of God, just raise your hand as well. How many of you say, I still struggle with sin, I still get tempted? How many of you would say, and I'll be one of the first ones, my temptations are greater as a follower of Jesus Christ than they were before I followed him. Why? Because the enemy doesn't like us doing that. The enemy doesn't like us following Jesus Christ in faith. 
So we have this, this two natures that are at war with each other. And that's what we looked at last Sunday. And just, just by way of review, really quick, we looked at two truths last Sunday. And I'm just going to give them to you. I'm not going to re-preach them. The first truth is this. Every believer has a constant war raging inside of them. Every single one. We see that in the latter part of Romans chapter 7 in verse number 23. He says, I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. He, Paul is saying, once I got saved, it's almost like this new part of me comes alive and is at war. Now, I, I, I'm with Paul. I would have loved it if the way God did this whole gospel thing is the moment I got saved, temptation no longer bothered me is the moment that I gave my life to Christ, all of a sudden I did become perfect. By the way, as perfect as we sometimes like to act like we are with everybody else. But we know we're not. It'd be nice if he would actually make that to be the case, but this war begins inside of us. And in Galatians 5, 17, he says, the flesh ends up desiring what is against the spirit. The spirit desires what's against the flesh. They're opposed to one another, that, so you don't do what you want. Guess who wrote that in Galatians? The Apostle Paul. He knows what it's like to be in that war. Colossians chapter 3 says, Don't lie to one another since you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. You're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So what he's telling us is this war that we, are, that we have waging inside of us is all part of the Christian experience. When we come to know Christ, yes, we are given eternal life. Yes, we are given a home in heaven. But we're also now enlisting in a battle that we never knew we were coming into. So whoever told you that if you get saved, all your problems goes away, they lied to you. They lied. All our problems don't go away. All of our problems are eternally solved in Jesus. But our problems don't go away. Not until we see him face to face in heaven. The second thing that we see is, the second truth we saw is that in Christ... I'm on the side of victory now. I don't know about you, but if I'm headed into battle, it makes me feel a whole lot better if I know I'm headed into battle knowing the battle's already won. Right? It's kind of like the perspective of, we look back, and I, I, I love to study history. I, I love, love to study history. And one of my favorite portions of history to study is like the Revolutionary War and that, that time right there uh, in history. But I always look at that from the perspective of as, as, as an American who knows that, you know, our side won, right? Something, if I were to go back in time, yeah, man, I'd go ahead and get in that army because I already know that we won. But I'm not going to go back in time to something that I know I'd be defeated in already. What the Bible tells us and what Paul is telling us that, yes, there's a war that rages inside of us, but take heart in the fact that you know that the ultimate victory is already won, See, here's how we know the victory was already won. We look back and we see the gospel says, you were dead, you were already a loser. But in the gospel, through Jesus Christ, you've been raised to life everlasting. Life that cannot end. It's hard to defeat an army that just won't die. Right? So we know that victory is already ours. 1 Corinthians 15 said the sting, of death, or the sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how bad it may seem, no matter how, bad it may, how, how much you may think that the other side is winning or that it's even winning in your heart, know this. In Jesus Christ, if you belong to Christ, you are already given victory. Already. The victory is already won. We've moved from the side of defeat 
to the side of victory. So those are two truths that have to guide us. No matter what we may feel raging inside of us, no matter how much we may feel like Jekyll and Hyde, and no matter how conflicted we may feel a lot of times, these things begin to center us again. Number one, there is a battle raging, but in Christ I'm already victorious. I will not lose the war. I will not lose the war. And that changes my perspective as I live. So perspective number one is this. My sinful tendencies are not the real me anymore. Every one of us just said, every one of us that said we're a disciple of Jesus Christ also admitted, yes, I still struggle with sin. I still have sinful tendencies. So today before we leave, we're going to have you get up with a microphone and tell everybody what sins they are. No, I'm just teasing. We're not going to do that. But we all have sinful tendencies. Every one of us said that. And if you did it just to look like everybody else, you lied. So your sinful tendency is to lie. My sinful tendencies are not the real me anymore. Remember this. That's the old me, the dead me, the slave to sin me. It's not the renewed me in Jesus Christ. It's not the me of the present and the future. It's so important that we remember this perspective. Remember I mentioned last Sunday that we all have kind of two eras in our lives as followers of Christ. We have the BC era and the AD era. We have the before Christ era, before I was saved. Matter of fact, if somebody were to ask you to explain Christianity or to give you or to give them your testimony, try to break it down that way. What my life was like before Jesus, how I met Jesus, and what my life has been like afterward. And folks, your life is totally different now in the AD after you died to sin than it ever was before Christ. See, suppose in your BC days you had this sinful habit and that you didn't like, but you'd find yourself falling into it over and over and over and over again. It's that, as the word says, it's that besetting sin that constantly rears its head to us. And you feel bad about it, and for a little while you'd say you're sorry, and you'd say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and I'm going to do it like we all do with our diets on January the 1st. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. No more sugar, no more this, no more that. And then, you know, January 3rd, you know, we're back to it, right? We get up, we do good for a little while, because here's the thing. All of us have a little bit of strength to do good for a little while, but we're slaves to sin. So that means the sin is the master. So it's always going to come. It's always going to have control. It always gets the final say. Those are our BC days. But we get saved and now we're thinking, all right, that was BC. Everything, I'm victorious, so nothing should bother me. And you become a Christian, but to your shock, you find out that the struggle is still there. You find out that the temptation is still there and in some ways the temptation is even stronger and you fall back into it just like you used to and this happens to everybody and it's easy to look at that and look at your life and look at your failures and say, nothing has changed. It's easy to look at, oh, I messed up again and say, nothing has changed. And then it's very easy for the enemy to start saying, that God that you believe in, he's not real. You were believing in a fairy tale. But here's what we have to understand by the truth of the word of God. Everything has changed. The battle has not changed. The sin and the temptation has not changed. It's your new perspective. Because what the enemy can tell us, and what we, if we constantly focus on our sin and our past, we'll begin to think like we're in a battle that we can never win. But that's not the perspective that we have anymore in victory. Because now, you're not in a battle that you can't win. You're in a battle that you can't lose. In Jesus Christ, we've been in the victory. See, I may struggle, and there's a reason for that, which we're going to talk about in just a second. We may still struggle, but you may falter. You may also find out that you're not as strong as you hoped you would be, but the ultimate outcome is already determined. Christ has won the victory. Death is dead, and sin is defeated in Christ. See, sin can knock at you and scratch at you, but it cannot kill you anymore. It no longer holds you anymore. 
It may rattle the chains around you to remind you of what it used to be like. But Jesus holds the key that unlocked those chains. And he reminds you of the future that is ahead. And as you continue to lean into this and understand that you have victory, you start to find that sin doesn't taste as good as it used to taste and it doesn't satisfy like it used to. Look at what Paul says in verse 22. He says, for in my inner self, I delight in God's law. What Paul is saying is in my inner self, the core. And this is where the gospel reaches to. The gospel doesn't just reach to the surface of what you look like or the things you say. The gospel reaches into the inner core. This is why as children of God, we never judge a book by its cover, right? We never look at a person and say, well, they don't necessarily look like they belong to Jesus. We don't, we don't ever do that, right? See, the gospel reaches into the core of who we are. He says, in my inner self, I delight in God's law. This is the new self. This is the new us. Before Christ, we didn't delight in the law of God. We had no other choice but to give in to the mastery of sin. But now we have an inner delight in the law of God. It's no longer satisfied with sin, and it will only truly be satisfied with righteousness of pleasing God. See, there's a scene in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. If you remember that story, Jesus goes and one of his good friends, Lazarus, has died and he's been in the grave for four days now. And Jesus walks out. Remember that verse that we just learned, we just memorized, Jesus wept? Comes from this story. Jesus stands at the tomb and he begins to weep over his friend and over the, actually the, over the unbelief of the people around him. And he looks at the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> and people are like, dude, we are not moving that stone out of the way. He says, move the stone. So they move the stone out of the way and they're like, uh, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. It's not going to smell pleasant once we open this. And Jesus says, move the stone. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And guess what happens? Lazarus comes forth. He once was dead, but now he is alive. You beginning to catch a theme here? But an interesting thing happens in John chapter 11 after Lazarus comes out. He comes out in his grave clothes. Not completely mummified like in the Egyptian culture, but he's got, he's wrapped in linens and everything and he's got a cloth over his head and everything like that. And Jesus says something very significant to the people that are standing around. They say to him, get him out of those clothes because he is no longer dead. The struggle that Paul is talking about here, that he's like, the things I want to do, the things I don't do, here's the struggle that we all have. We're all Lazarus. We've been called forth but we still, like, we still feel comfortable in our grave clothes. We still get used to what it's like to be in the tomb and we struggle with walking off with those clothes. We have a new us. Sin is no longer me anymore. My sinful tendencies is no longer the real me anymore. So in the struggle and in the fight, Paul is saying, I have to remember what's deep down inside of me. What's inside of me is this new nature that I've been given to please God. You may not even want to right now. You may say, it doesn't seem as fun to do what God wants me to do. But trust this fact, the inner part of yourself desires that. The spirit living inside of you desires that. Let the spirit have his way. And as you do that, the sin, the temptation, all that stuff begins to kind of not taste as good, not feel as good, not satisfy like it used to because you're shedding those grave clothes. The second perspective we have to have is no longer that my sinful tendencies are no longer me, but also is I can have confidence even when I feel the most defeated. I can have confidence even when I feel like I'm the most defeated. I don't know about you, but 
when I'm in a battle with sin, I don't always feel like a real successful Christian, right? Sin has a way of discouraging us as believers. See, before Christ, sin has a way of just holding us down in a place of hopelessness and despair. But after Christ, once we come to know Christ, it discourages us from ever looking at the Savior who saved us. It's kind of like the story of Peter when he wanted to walk on the water. Jesus was there and Jesus said, keep your eyes on me, walk out to me. Defying all the laws of nature, defying everything that anybody should have thought, all the conventional wisdom. But the minute that Jesus, the minute that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, what happened? He sank. That is a picture of what happens with us. In Christ, we've been called to all kinds of things. We've been called to glory. We've been called to victory. But what happens is we oftentimes take our eyes off of Christ, the one who saved us, and we put our eyes on ourselves, or we put our eyes on our circumstances, and we forget that Jesus is a part of the equation. When Jesus is part of the equation, the equation will always be solved. Okay? I, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a mathematician. But I do know that when Jesus is in the equation, it will always be solved. See, it has a way of discouraging us when we sin, but it doesn't need to be that way. Because of the victory that we're living in now, we can have confidence even when we're in the weakest place that we could ever be. In December of 1941, England was on the verge of losing to Hitler's military advances in Europe. London was under siege and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And the European side just believed that it was only a matter of time before Hitler kind of took over the entire, the entire area of Europe. And they needed help and they didn't know where it would come from. Then on December the 7th, 1941, something happened. And if you know your American history, you know that that's the bombing of Pearl Harbor. When the news reached England that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill walked into his office and he called President Roosevelt to offer his condolences. And then he said to President Roosevelt, he said, Mr. President, we're all in the same boat now. You may have wanted to stay out of this war, but the war came to you. After bombing of Pearl Harbor, Japanese Admiral Yamamoto said, I fear all that we have done in bombing the U.S. is to awake a sleeping giant. Churchill thought the same thing, but from a different perspective. He would later write in his journal about that phone call with President Roosevelt. He said, no American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was now on our side was the greatest joy to me in that moment. He said, I hated that all those Americans had to die, but for the, <laughs> but for the sustainability of England, I was thankful that it did. He said England would now live. Britain would now live. The rest of the war was simply a proper application of the overwhelming force that we now had on our side. Churchill said, I went to bed that night and I slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. That overwhelming force that he talked about was the overwhelming force that Yamamoto talked about was awakening the sleeping giant of the U.S. military. The entrance of the U.S. military into World War II is what kind of changed the changed the course, at least for the European side, changed the course of the war for them. That overwhelming force that Churchill felt is so much lesser than the overwhelming force that we feel when we come to know Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit moves inside of us to live inside of us and to occupy our hearts. See, in Christ, without Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins and there is no help. The enemy can run free, but when we come to know Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that hell quakes at the sound of the name Jesus. And it trembles. 
That overwhelming force transformed Churchill's attitude from helpless to hopeless. And even though nothing had actually changed on the front that night, he knew that help was on the way. And it was only a matter of time before that overwhelming force set in. In our lives, we have that overwhelming force as well. It's called salvation. It's called the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Holy Spirit assures us of victory in Christ. And even in our darkest days, we can find encouragement in that victory. Is there still a battle raging? Yes. Is there still temptation to conquer? Yes. But victory is already assured. See, confidence springs eternal even in the darkest of times. But it really matters where your confidence comes from. And if you're still just looking to yourself for your confidence, if you're still just looking to just pick yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and just muscle through it and just figure out how to be a better version of of yourself, you've already lost. But if you go to Jesus, if you fall on your face before him and you call upon the power of the Holy Spirit in your battle, victory is already yours. But the reason sometimes we walk around with our heads held low, wondering if God is really who he says he is, wondering if Jesus is actually going to keep his promises is because we're looking at us to fulfill the promises that only Jesus can fulfill. That's how messed up we can get. And then we look around and wonder why God's not working. It's because we haven't asked him or expected him to. We've taken our eyes off of him. We're sinking in the water and we haven't even gotten smart enough yet to call out to him and say, save me again. Our confidence must be in God and his love and in Christ and his finished work upon the cross and the victory that we have and the Holy Spirit and his overwhelming presence that reminds us that the darkness is only temporary and it will never consume us in Christ. Just like there was only three days of darkness for Jesus in the tomb, there was that third day when the, tomb, when the stone rolled away and Jesus stepped out in all of his glory. Our darkness, your darkness in Christ is only temporary. It's only a shadow of what sin and death can do. Do you ever feel that way? Like it's always sinking in. It's important to remember when you feel like you're losing and when you feel like you're letting God down, remember you can't let God down because you were never able to hold him up. I love that, man. I can't let God down because I was never the one strong enough to hold him up in the first place. Romans chapter 7 verse 18 says this, for I know that nothing good lives in me. Paul just goes ahead and admits it. Nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but I have no ability to do it. So what he's saying is I got this new desire, but I still feel like there's no ability. For why do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. And then he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? See, there's going to be times when you feel like it's so dark and you feel like you're so defeated that there is nothing good going on and you have nothing left to offer. You have nothing left to give. And quite honestly, you feel like God's given up too. You may never doubt that Jesus loves you, but you will doubt whether you love him. Paul's saying right here that even though he's probably one of the most renowned Christians in history, he had seasons when he went dark on God and where he didn't lean into the new Paul like he should have. And he was tormented by the fact. He said, well, somebody deliver me from this body of death. Remember when I said last week that a good indicator that you're truly a child of God is that you have a new want to? 
See, sometimes we don't always do the things that we want to, but we, the want to is still there, and that's the sign that we belong to him in the first place. Here's where Paul, we see Paul's changed want to. He's broken by the struggle that's inside of him. He may still fall into sin, but he can't find peace in that sin anymore. See, I don't believe that a believer can sin peacefully. I don't think that we can find peace in our sin. If you're finding peace in your sin, check with God. Because deep down, there's this new regenerated heart that wants to seek God and wants to change. And they want God to do more and they want God more. And the question I ask you this morning is, does that describe you? Deep down, do you have a desire for more of God? You may not feel like you're getting him right now. You may feel like there's been times in your past when you, were, when you had more of God than you have right now. But deep down, do you still have that desire? It's like Mr. Jekyll, or it's like Mr. Hyde is running all over, but Dr. Jekyll is screaming out in desperation, I want to do the right thing. I want to want the right thing. And the wonderful truth is that in the midst of all this darkness and this Mr. Hyde moment is that God hears our desperation. I love what Psalm 51 says. The sacrifice that is pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and a humbled or a contrite heart, oh my God. The best place that we can be in prayer is broken before God. A lot of times we think we have to come to God and tell him all about the good things we're doing. And I don't know about you, sometimes I get tired of going to God and saying, I'm sorry. I, I, I do. Like, so one of these days I want to come to you, God, and say, look what I did. But right here, Psalm says, the sacrifice that's pleasing to God is a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. God will never turn it away. Never. And I think that's why perspective number three is beautiful. Is that God is using the struggle and the battle that rages inside to make us appreciate grace even more. God's using the battle that's inside to make us appreciate his grace even more. Look again at verse number 24. At the end of the chapter, we get the picture of Paul at the end of his rope, right? He's like, somebody deliver me from this body of death. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't, what I, I don't do what I do want to do, and all this stuff. And you get this idea that he's just like, ah! That's the way I've always looked at it, but I see it a little differently now. Look at verse number 24. It says, what a wretched man that I am. It says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this? Paul can't. Being a Pharisee can't, just willing himself to do more, can't deliver him from this body of death. The passage more than any other shows Paul as vulnerable and humble and broken and contrite. And this is how I think we see the evidence of a true changed heart in Paul. And this is where we see the evidence of a true changed heart in us. See, because B.C. Paul, Pharisee Paul, would have never shown himself vulnerable like this, let alone let it be written down for posterity's sake. He'd never want to admit that he fell short. Because his accolades were what were bringing him closer to God. But in AD, after death to himself and after Christ, he reveals the worst at him. He reveals that he is a mess and that he is as transparent as they come. And it ends up pointing to the glory of the one who saved him. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? And then in verse number 25, we see the glory. It says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He said, who's going to deliver me from this? The one who already has, Jesus Christ. The one who knocked me off of that horse or that camel or that Vespa or whatever it was on the road to Damascus. 
and called out to me and said, come to me. Who's going to deliver me from this? Where does the rescue come from? The rescue comes from Jesus Christ and through only Jesus Christ. So let's apply this to ourselves as we get ready to close out this morning. Who has rescued you? Who is your rescuer? Who do you turn to when you start to sink? Who do you turn to when the temptation begins to rage? Who do you turn to when the doubts begin to creep in? Who do you turn to when life doesn't turn out the way you thought it should? You see, because a lot of times what we do in our American Christianity is we think that Jesus exists only to make our life work right. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to give us eternal life. Down here, it's always going to be messed up. It's not going to be right. But he won't leave us alone in the middle of it. Who do you turn to when the struggle gets hard? Who's your rescue? And who do you turn to when you feel like you've let God down? This is, this is the beauty of our Savior. That the one that we oftentimes rebel and run from is the only one we can turn to to rescue us from that run. And he's willing to chase us down as the great shepherd. Who do you turn to? You? Just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Ask God to forgive you and hope you'll do better tomorrow. Do you turn to your church? Do you turn to... Where do you turn to? Do you turn to figure out how to control your urges and avoid temptation? Do you turn to learning all there is to learn about what it looks like to be a good Christian? Or do you turn to people who make you feel better about yourself? No, you have to turn to Christ because only he can deliver you from the body of death. Jesus has resurrected your body from that death. He's resurrected your soul and your spirit. And if he hasn't yet, he's just waiting for you to call. He's waiting for you to call for him. He removed the grave clothes that you were clothed in and he clothed you in grace. He's clothed you in victory and mercy and righteousness. See, I used to look at these verses and I used to think, man, how miserable Paul is here. He's like, he's just a hot mess that he can't get it figured out. But I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. I think Paul is bringing all of this struggle to Jesus and he's offering it up to him as worship. He's like, man, I am a mess, but in Christ, I'm made whole. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He's so grateful and he's thankful for the grace of God that redeems and that restores and renews everything. John Newton, who was the writer of Amazing Grace, he was an old slave trader who realized the horrific nature of what he had done later on in life became a believer and he wrote that hymn that we sing today is kind of the anthem of our faith. He said this later on in his journal. He said, a lot of people think that the Christian life is about arriving at a point where you no longer need grace, where you no longer do anything wrong and you no longer need to say, I'm sorry to God anymore. He said, but what I have found is as you progress in your Christian life, you find out more and more an awareness of your constant need for grace. Christianity isn't lived by needing Jesus less. It's lived every day needing him more. Paul's not at the end of his rope here. Paul has had a place where he's offering true glory and grace to Jesus Christ. See, growing in grace on this side of heaven is growing in our awareness and our need for grace. I think about it like this, and this is the way Tony Evans, as we go to our invitation now, Tony Evans, I love his preaching and how simplistic he is, and he just brings things down to a place where I can understand it, and I really appreciate that. How many of you are dog lovers? 
Okay, good. Okay. Uh, cat lovers in here? This is not going to apply because there is nothing spiritual about a cat whatsoever. Okay? But there's a difference between a grace dog and a law dog. Okay? And you can tell how their owner, how the dog's owner is by the way that they react. You see, when the owner comes home to, to a law dog, the, own, the, the dog kind of runs and has their tail tucked between their legs and they're pensive and they don't, they're afraid of what the owner is going to do because they're always living in fear of that they've done something while they've been gone. But a grace dog, a grace dog meets you at the door with his tail wagging, happy to see that you're home because he's been living under grace. It doesn't mean that the dogs, either one of those dogs have done anything different. They've probably messed in the house. They've probably done all those things, but they know when they're under grace and when they're under the law. A lot of us live like law dogs, just afraid of God, afraid of him lowering his hand. And so verse, this, this passage right here, we're going to look at Paul and be like, man, Paul was just as messed up as I am, and what's the hope? But grace dogs, they look at this and they say, man, I am messed up, but God has redeemed me from this. We don't look at it as a way of just saying, hey, I'm going to go off and do whatever I want to and just abuse the grace of God. It gives us gratitude to please God and to serve him more every day. But there's one other kind of dog. And it's that dog who hasn't been rescued yet. And maybe that's you. So what I've talked about here and what Paul is talking about is in the perspective of who I am in Christ. But some of you may not be in Christ yet. You haven't come to understand the blessing of salvation. You haven't come to the place where you've asked Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Without Christ, you can't have that peace. Without Christ, there is no forgiveness. Without Christ, the Bible says there's no remission of sin and there's no eternal life. If you don't know Christ as your Savior or if you have doubts about that, talk to somebody today. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And that the wages of our sin, verse number 23 of our text said, what we earn from our sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God didn't owe it. <laughs> he gave it freely. We didn't deserve it. You only owe something if somebody deserves it, and we don't deserve it. But he offers it to us freely. If you don't know Christ, come to him today. Talk to somebody. If you're watching here virtually, either email us, gracewaylex at gmail.com, or... Just comment right there in the section that you want to know how you can know Jesus is your Savior. But if you have something that's heavy on your heart, every one of us raise our hands and said, hey, I got sin that I struggle with every day. And for some of you, you're right in the midst of a war and a battle that is raging and you feel like you're losing. Understand this, in Christ, you're in a battle you can't lose. But call upon him to walk with you every step of the way. If you have struggles, you have things you need to talk about, whatever, we're here for that. Father, may you do your will and way in this invitation. Bless us now. Move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.